Welcome to Paper Boys, the podcast where we unravel the research papers behind the latest major headlines in science. I'm your host, James. And I'm your other host, Charlie. You know, a lot of times I'm reading about science in the news and I wonder, there's got to be more to this story. So every Thursday, James and I go to the source of those stories to open up the work behind beautiful new discoveries and cut through misinformation in the media. Today's episode is about a funny little creature called a tardigrade, also known as a water bear. Well, I've never heard of a tardigrade. But a water bear sounds pretty badass. Yeah, they're pretty, pretty cool. They basically live forever. And recent news headlines have been talking about tardigrades and their ability to withstand these extreme conditions. So I dove into a new-ish paper by Thomas Boothby and several others, uh, primary author Bob Goldstein at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who looked into what is it that makes these tardigrades so resilient to these extreme conditions. I'm excited to tell you about the real science that's actually behind these headlines. Cool. Well, I have not read this paper, obviously, so I'll be asking you a lot of questions, and hopefully you can explain it a little more to me. Charlie and I are both PhD students who read lots of papers for our own research. So this podcast is our way of sharing our love for diving deep into science with anyone who wants to learn more about the discoveries that affect us all. We are the Paper Boys. All right, before we get started, I just want to say thank you to anyone out there who's listening. If you can hear the sound of my voice, we would really appreciate if you sent us a tweet and just let us know where you're listening from, like what you're doing right now. Like, hey, I'm in lab and I'm listening to the paper boys. We get a lot of excitement just knowing that anyone's out there tuning in and learning about science with us. So our Twitter is at paperboyspod. We're also on Instagram, the same handle. So James, how did you hear about this tardigrades and this immortality thing? I'd love to hear more about what's going on. So the past couple of years, it seems like every couple of months you can expect an article about tardigrades and they're <laughs> essentially these immortal little creatures. Wait, are you being serious? Because I've never read a headline about tardigrades. Really? Yeah. Where are you getting your science news, Charlie? I, I think we're using different websites. I'm probably at like tardigrades.com wondering why there's so many. <laughs> tardigrades.net backslash immortality. NewYorkTardigrades.com. <laughs> so I, you know. The buck finally stopped and I was like, I need to understand more about what's so fascinating about these tardigrades. And sure enough, on the New York Times, I saw this headline, Searching Tardigrades for Life-Saving Secrets. Researchers are drawing inspiration from the proteins they think let hardy water bears, an alternative name for tardigrades, cheat time by decelerating their biology. Okay, so the New York Times just sort of randomly pulled out this tardigrade thing. Is this based on a very new study or? So I got Paperboy duped. Oh, no. I thought this was going to lead me into an article and I like went down this rabbit hole. And I, as I started preparing for this episode, long story short, this specific article did not lead to like any new research. It was more that these researchers at Harvard had gotten a new grant from the Department of Defense to start looking into tardigrades. But it did uncover a lot of recent papers and new advances that were pretty interesting. So the paper I brought in is actually from 2017. Gasp. No one will hold it against me. Wait, let's back up a second. You said that they got a grant from the Department of Defense to study tardigrades? They got. Also, what is a tardigrade? We have not established this yet. So a tardigrade is an animal. 
It's in the kingdom of Animalia. Okay. And then it's so, if you remember from like sixth grade biology, there's kingdom and there's phylum. So tardigrade is a phylum. Oh, so this is like a very broad class of things. Yes. So they're a phylum of water-dwelling eight-legged micro-animals. Micro, so how big are they? They are very small. They're about a half millimeter long, fully grown. Whoa. So you could almost not even see this thing. Yeah. I mean, if you saw it, it's like just a little speck. What does it look like up close? Well, they call them water bears. If bears had eight legs. (laughs) And for some reason, they also call them moss piglets. What? Yeah. I mean, it kind of looks like a weird mix of like a bear and a pig. Almost like man bear pig from South Park. Oh, okay. But like a half millimeter big and real. Okay. So Al Gore is going to have a lot of searching to do if he wants to find this man bear pig. Yeah. Uh, Tardigrades actually just came out with a great new documentary about global warming. Oh, okay. Not true. But um, <laughs> they are fascinating, though. So the Department of Defense is interested in them. Lots of people are interested in them for a multitude of reasons. The most important being that these things are like almost indestructible. Really? How so? They're essentially able to slow down their biology in extreme conditions, which gives them the ability to survive things like really high temperatures, really dry conditions that would normally dry something out and kill it, uh, radiation in space, x-ray radiation. Wait, have they actually tested these things in space? Yeah. Whoa. There are actually papers where they sent up tardigrade experiments into low Earth orbit and they've exposed them to radiation. And, and they came back alive. Yeah, I didn't read that paper specifically. That would have actually been a really cool one. But, um, but So we have tardigrade astronauts. Yeah. That's pretty cool. They've earned their it's wings. Probably been more tardigrades in space than humans. Uh, statistically, that's very possible. Yeah. Yeah. And so people are really interested in them. They've been on Earth for at least 250 million years. Whoa. So they're pretty resilient. And um, people look at them as one sort of organism that could be an example for how life spreads. There's some recent research... It's a little controversial. People weren't totally sure about the conclusions, but they have this apparently an ability to steal genetics from like other different animals like fungi and bacteria. I guess not animals, but other organisms. So a large portion of their genome is made up of sort of foreign genetic material. How does that happen? Like, are they able to reproduce with them somehow? From what I understood reading this paper, it's like they're somewhat porous as far as animals go. And so at times, like, genetic material enters and just gets integrated. That's super hand-wavy. I'm not very satisfied. I wouldn't be satisfied if I heard myself say that, but I'm not a biologist. That sounds really gross, too. Yeah. Like, imagine if, like, every time your cat barfed on you a little bit, you became a little bit more like a cat. That would be gross. But you're probably already, like, a lot like a cat if you have a cat anyways. That's true. In spirit, but not in genetic material. (laughs) (laughs) What's the difference? That's a bigger philosophical debate, I guess. All right. So I have a sort of an understanding now of what these things are and why they're important. But why was this new grant written? Why is this research ongoing? What are these new researchers actually trying to do? I mean, you know, at the root of it all, I think it's people want to be immortal. And so we really try to take an example from all the little... I mean, that's not explicitly stated in any of the research that I've done, but like... Why else would you study an animal that's like nearly immortal? Well, I would say more like why else would the Department of Defense study this animal? Yeah. So scientists will always be intrigued by anything that moves. That's true. But the DOD will put big money into making people immortal, I'm sure. So, I mean, I guess if you trace this down, 
it has very real applications of being able to preserve tissues, it's really hard to preserve human tissue. And so we could learn a lot asking the question of, can the physiology of this tardigrade, for example, yield insights that could be applied to humans for how we could extend the longevity of human tissues, especially for things like cardiac tissues, tissues that degrade very rapidly. Okay, so the preservation of tissues is about the fact that it will biodegrade. I've also feel like I've read something about cryonics before, you know, like when people will try to get themselves frozen and then reanimated later. And there's a whole issue where like freezing human tissue because it's made up of a lot of water, those ice crystals destroy the tissue. They're like sharp. Yeah. And so I'm not not sure what the actual like composition of tardigrades is. I don't actually know why that doesn't happen to tardigrades. But you but did it say is a they problem. survive the extreme cold, right? They do, yeah. And like, so there are frogs that do similar things, but there's something about the mechanism with tardigrades that's slightly different. Like some researchers have identified this sugar called triolose, which some organisms use to survive being dried out to protect their cellular contacts, like their genetic material. But tardigrades actually use something different. They have these complex proteins that researchers are really interested in. And so the study that I pulled in, which is entitled Tardigrades Use Intrinsically Disordered Proteins to Survive Desiccation, which is like drying out, looks into these proteins. And to get into your question, uh, the ultimate goal is how could we come up with a protein-based therapy that can halt tissue damage in situations of like traumatic injuries or heart attacks, strokes, uh, among other conditions? Okay, so... It sounds like this paper is saying tardigrades use some protein that allows them to survive being totally dried out. So let's say like these tardigrades live in the moss near a river. I'm guessing that's why they're called moss piglets. And then suddenly there's a drought and they don't have any water for a while. They can somehow survive that situation. Yeah, if you put them in a small little tinfoil package and sell them to kids as sea monkeys. Wait, is are sea monkeys tardigrades? No. You're about to blow my... Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, no. So sea monkeys are not tardigrades, but it's somewhat related. Sea monkeys are a type of brine shrimp, but they can actually be like reanimated after they're dried out. Okay. So the point being like they need water to live, but then they can go for a long period without it just by like freezing themselves kind of. Yeah. One of the... Just, I thought that was a funny example because it's one of those things of like really debatably dumb pop culture. I mean, they were great as a kid. Yeah. That's everyone had a sea monkey at one point. So it's like this cheap little marketing thing. But like, you know, the biology behind that is fascinating. You dry this thing out and sell it to kids and they put water on it and these things come back to life. How cool is that? And I think of how you said tardigrades have been around for 250 million years. Like they developed this skill over such a long time to be able to do something probably pretty specific, like to survive their environment. Mm -hmm. And then humans come along and they're like, oh, we could use that for a toy. Almost sounds like a weird analogy for a PhD, right? Developing this very specific skill to like yes. survive your environment. Yes, and then a company will hire you and use you for a toy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, that uh, sounds about right. And on that dark note... Um, what exactly is this paper that you looked into? So before we can really ask these questions of how do we come up with a protein-based solution to extend longevity of human tissues, we actually really need to understand like what proteins are they? What is it specifically about tardigrades that make them so robust to different robot environments? Okay. So per the scientific method, you can refine that hypothesis down a little bit and look at more specific instances. So in this paper, they had noticed that tardigrades are able to survive desiccation or drying out if they're dried out over a long enough period of time. So if they're not dried out too fast, but if they're dried out too quickly, they find that they die. Oh, interesting. So what does that actually mean then for how the tardigrade survives? 
So this gave the scientists an indication that something about the drying process was triggering genes to express themselves and create these proteins that were protecting the tardigrades from this extremely dry environment that they were entering. And so they decided to look at what are the genes that are being expressed and what are these proteins that are being generated in response to the drying. Specifically, these things are called intrinsically disordered proteins. They lack this, like, they call it a tertiary structure. That uh, So they're kind of just like these random proteins. Okay. From my basic understanding. Okay, so something about these proteins and the way that their genes are behaving during this slow drying process is what allows them to live. Yeah, from reading the paper, as I understand it, it's like the tardigrade is aware that it's being dried out and these genes turn on, they generate these proteins, and they essentially protect the genome inside the tardigrade during this process such that these proteins are actually vitrifying or almost turning into a glassy state. Whoa. Yeah. That's crazy. It is pretty crazy, actually. So they're like mummifying them, but not actually dead. Like self-mummification, yeah. There's a great little graphic of it, which we'll post on the website. Okay, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at this picture, and you kind of have like two different flow charts. It shows on the, on the left, it's like you dry out this tardigrade, and then you rehydrate it, and it's dead because you did it too fast. But then the right side shows the case where you do it slow enough, and it looks like it's like shrinking, and like it's kind of encased in these proteins, according to this picture. And then when you rehydrate it, it is still alive. I don't really understand how that happens, but I, I'm fascinated by the fact that it shrunk down. Yeah, it turns out one of the random facts I learned about tardigrades is their normal body composition has like 85% water. But when they dry out in this instance, they actually go down to like 3% water. What? But they're able to recover from that, which is amazing. Because you, like you mentioned earlier, that damage to human tissue... Uh, it'd be really hard. Also, like humans are, what, 75% water. And yeah. Imagine going down to 3% and then surviving. That's imagine not, how doesn't ugly we would be. <laughs> Just these <laughs> little shriveled up. up. Probably not look much better than a tardigrade. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and then you rehydrate them, give them a little water, and they're back. That is insane. Yeah. It's yeah. crazy. So I'm curious. These things are so small. They must be really hard to study. How do they actually find out that this process was happening so the first thing that they did on a high level was between the normal environment and then the dried out environment they looked at the tardigrades genes and so they looked at what genes are being expressed when they're just you know in their normal happy tardigrade lifestyle and then in this dried out state when they've been dried out for a slow period of time okay what and what does that actually mean when you say they look at their genes like they're just sequencing a, something or yeah, I think they're sequencing the tardigrade genes and looking at what genes are being expressed and which ones aren't. Okay. that will signify what proteins is the tardigrade generating to actually like go from like normal state to survival mode in this desiccated state. Okay, so question from a non-biologist asking you, a non-biologist, when genes get expressed, there's a protein involved? Is that kind of what you're implying? I'm going to come out with a very non-scientific yes on that. <laughs> okay. um, I imagine there are more implications to it, but from what I understood reading this paper, being a non-biologist, that was my understanding. These genes turn on, and they generate proteins. Okay, so you can kind of like use one as a sign for the other. At least in this specific case. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to hedge my bet there. Okay. Yeah, they looked at the genes, what genes are being expressed. They were able to identify certain genes that are being expressed in greater abundance. And then 
Wait, so the genes being expressed were actually significantly changing as the tardigrade dried out? Yes. Really? Wow. Significantly. And they identified uh, three main types that were being expressed significantly higher in abundance. And there's something about like gene enrichment as well. From there, that gave them a hint that they could start looking into what sort of proteins are being generated. Okay, so then they tried to identify these proteins and maybe look for an explanation of this sort of immortality thing that way? Yes, yes. And as I hinted at earlier, they had an idea of what the proteins might be. There's like that sugar that other animals often use to survive desiccation, but there's been some other research that has hinted that tardigrades might use these things called intrinsically disordered proteins to survive desiccation okay and these are the things that you said do this whole like vitrification yeah okay they think these are what are protecting the tardigrades and so they look at them and so they wanted to uh, actually identify them and identify their structure okay so the idea is that maybe this gene expression is changing causing a higher amount of intrinsically disordered proteins to come out yes okay yeah And I think that's interesting for researchers because that's something that you can then implant into other animals. Right. If you can identify the right protein, you could use that elsewhere. Yeah. Insert this gene into other organisms. and. Okay. So I kind of get how they did like the gene detection stuff, but how do they actually figure out what the proteins are? So they use this technique called nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy which is abbreviated NMRS. Okay. I know a couple of those words individually, but... Charlie, I have to tell you, this is something that's near and dear to my heart. Why? This is one of those technologies, as I've said on many episodes, that really, I would say, and many other people would say, came about because of radar in World War II. Oh, that is your favorite technology genesis. It's true. Radar. It's true. This is how we originally found out that The Milky Way is a spiral galaxy. What? Yep. Nuclear magnetic resonance. Wait, hang on. You can't just blow by that. I could derail this whole podcast just talking about it. Let's do another episode on nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy. Seriously, we will do that. Long story short, if you have a nucleus and you put it in a large static magnetic field and you inject RF energy, uh, you can have it flip states from low to high energy states. It's like if you had a compass. And if you take your finger and reorient it one way, you're putting energy into the system. And if you let go, it wants to spin the other way. So it has a high and low energy state. I see. And you can measure that RF energy that it gives off as it spins back. And you can use that to identify the different compositions of matter. Okay. So with my like limited understanding of spectroscopy, by seeing the different like amounts of energy that are coming back at you, it kind of gives you a the abundance of different types of nuclei in this system yeah and as i understand it if you know the relative amounts of these different atomic species within a structure then they have a pretty good understanding of how these things come together and you can start to back out like what's the form of this okay so they're doing this nmrs on the proteins that are getting spit out by this tardigrade yes and they can use that to back out the structure okay and so what did they actually find from this process so from these data sets combined with some of the other tests that they did like heat solubility something called circular dichroism and these other bioinformatics approaches they basically found that these proteins are disordered 
that was like the big finding as opposed to an ordered protein. Okay, so before you, I mean, you kind of already had said that like disordered, intrinsically disordered proteins are the thing that kind of causes immortality, quote unquote. But what this NMRS shows is just that, yes, we have intrinsically disordered proteins. Yeah, on a high level, you know, they did the, they looked at the gene expression. So they found drying led to higher gene expression in these certain genes. These genes led to an increase in these disordered proteins. So it seems logical that the mechanism that's allowing these tardigrades to survive the drying process might be connected to these disordered proteins that are being generated. Okay, so I now have the painful question that you probably can't answer, but... Ouch. No, not because of the (laughs) lack of technical knowledge, but if they already knew that intrinsically disordered proteins enabled quote-unquote immortality, why did they have to study these tardigrades so closely? Or did these tardigrades actually contribute to them discovering this so they took it as i understand it you know let me take a step back these researchers know the literature very thoroughly so it's possible from how i understand it that other people have suggested this before but they've looked at it from different approaches so my understanding from this article was they took a different approach to try to characterize the structure of the proteins and that was really novel in this okay and they say in the paper We took a bioinformatic approach to characterize the widespread disorder of members of the tardigrade intrinsically disordered proteins. And that is novel. Okay. Interesting. So it's sort of, you know, it's adding to the body of literature. Like we looked at it from this other perspective and that confirms this. I see. I see. So then does this contribution really prove anything? Like did they do anything beyond just confirming what was already out there? Um, So it's a really good question because... Maybe these proteins are just some byproduct of something else. And so, you know, you could go through a lot of work of trying to implant this protein therapy in another animal so that it expresses these genes. But maybe that's like not what's actually helping the tardigrade survive. Right. Like correlation, not causation. Exactly. Okay. And so they actually did some pretty cool tests that, you know, they wrote like two paragraphs about, but were probably very involved. (laughs) And... So the first thing that they did was to determine whether these proteins help tardigrades survive drying out, they performed what's called RNA interference, which essentially they modify the RNA in the tardigrade so that it can no longer express these intrinsically intrinsically disordered proteins. Okay, so they were able to stop the production of them. Yeah, and so the first step that they did was they... They stopped the production of this, and they verified that stopping the production of these IDPs didn't just kill the tardigrade off the bat. They're able to live normally in a normal environment without these genes. Okay, but then what happens when they dry them out? So then when they dried them out, the tardigrades that had these inhibited genes died. Really? Even if they dried them out slowly? Yeah, the rate of uh, dying was much higher than for the just normal tardigrades. Wow. It wasn't, I mean, it wasn't 100%, but like, it was significant. That's really cool. So that really kind of like verifies that, yeah, these genes are what are responsible for them surviving desiccation. Yeah. Yeah. And so... a cool little like genetic hack, I guess. I know. You think of like, you know, I don't know if you had professors talk about this, but like in undergrad, you put together your little toolbox of like skills, like, oh, I can program this or like I can build this hardware. It's like... (laughs) I, it, it's super impressive to me that biologists can just be like, oh, yeah, 
you know, we'll just go in there and turn off these genes. Like, yeah, I have, I have no idea how they do that. Do you think they have like a lab class that they all kind of half-ass their way through that's all about turning on and off genes? Probably. Like the same way you half-assed your little circuits class sophomore year. Hey, man. I mean, yeah, sophomore year. Was... I say you. I'm really talking about me. <laughs> that was me too. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. All these. Well, that's genesis. cool. I hope they don't turn off any of my genes. But yeah, or at least not the good ones. At least not the good ones. I've got a few good genes I'd like to keep. Just a couple. So those genes they, they were turning on and off are great for drying out. But was there anything else that those genes were doing? So the researchers were interested to see whether these genes contributed to tardigrades' resilience to freezing as well, or like other stresses. Oh, okay. Because they're not totally sure. Is it like, is it just one set of genes and one set of proteins that's helping them? Or or are there individual sets of genes that are actually helping the tardigrade become resilient in these different scenarios? For different environments. Because they do survive freezing, right? You mentioned that up front. Yeah, I mean, there's one case where, yeah, tardigrade was frozen without food or anything for 30 years, and they were able to bring it back. Whoa. So, I mean, it's an amazing capability, and so the researchers were curious to test it, and essentially what they found was they did the same experiment with freezing, and they did not see all of the same proteins from the drying out tests. Whoa, really? Yeah, so they so also ran Different this- genes got activated and different proteins got produced? Yeah, I don't think they did as thorough of a check of what new proteins were being produced, but they found that only a few of the proteins from the desiccation tests were produced, and they redid the RNA interference, and what they found was like the tardigrade species that had the RNA interference didn't actually die faster. So that was another way of like revalidating that these proteins that help with desiccation don't necessarily help with freezing. Wow. Oh, man, this is actually really coming full circle because now I'm remembering what you said at the beginning that tardigrades over millions of years have absorbed the genetic material of other species. Mm -hmm. So that would make sense that they wouldn't just have one set of genes that protects against all environmental stresses. That like over time they develop a different set of genes to help with different things. Like maybe they absorb some genes from a desert spider that helped them with (laughs) with the desiccation and then they absorb some genes from uh, fungus or something yeah some arctic lichen that let them survive the cold you know oh those vicious arctic lichen (laughs) don't get too close they bite yeah i do just have to put an asterisk on there that like the amount of foreign material is a point of debate with tardigrades oh okay but 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 i mean i think that's common speculate as a (laughs) non-biologist i do think that's common in the universe that like animals steal genetics from others oh, unlike okay. the in the low percentage okay. low less than 10 percent usually okay well strike everything i just said from the record sorry to come out there like very <laughs> academic and be Man, like, i was well i was so excited say, i know i mean i'm gonna i'm gonna withhold my last comment just because okay. i'm excited too well thank you but so the point being though They've adapted different sets of genes over all this time for different specific scenarios. It's not like these IDPs are necessarily the best thing for all extreme environments. Yeah, from what I understand. So it seems like... These things are really resilient then. They didn't just like happen to get lucky with one solution. No, I mean, it's really cool. And then you can think about these like specialized treatments where it's like you treat humans who are going to Mars where like one thing be like... Oh, yeah, Joe, you're going to Mars. Yeah, take this pill. This will give you those IDPs for Mars. Yeah. Like, that's a great point. Oh, Jill, you're going to the Arctic. Try one of these. Yeah. So, I mean, could you actually even do that? Like, is that actually a potential future for us? So, they 
tried this. I mean, not on animals. There was one study where they actually tested this with humans. What? Human cells. Human oh, cells. Okay. I need to be really careful about saying okay. that. They're very different implications. They just threw a couple babies down into the Antarctic. And see if they survived the cold. <laughs> it says lichen, man. It's, it's not the cold. It's the lichen that I get you. Yeah. So, I mean, overall, yeah, I, I do think it's possible from what I read in the paper. They said um, they wanted to assess the ability of these IDPs to increase another organism's tolerance to being dried out. And so they tried it with yeast and bacteria, which they engineered to express uh, some of these proteins. And they're really careful. It was cool to see sort of like what steps they took and precautions to make sure they weren't misinterpreting the data. Like if they expressed any genes and that ended up slowing the growth of the organism, they cut that out of the trial because slow growth, I guess, corresponds to a better tolerance to drying out. Okay, so they were really just trying to select for the ones where like the gene was injected and had no effect except when suddenly you're going to dry out. Yeah. Okay, like like a superpower, basically. Yeah, they only wanted the X-Men yeast cells, for okay. example. Okay. And so, you know, they talk about it a lot in the paper, and I highly suggest you check it out. It's open source. But um, long story short, they found that by adding these genes, the desiccation and tolerance of yeast nearly increased a hundredfold. What? Similar results were obtained in bacteria where they found some increases of more than two orders of magnitude in desiccation tolerance. Dude, no way. So that's cool. I mean... So it worked. Does that mean that a hundred times more yeast survived desiccation or that they survived a hundred times longer? It's the percent that survived from a culture, as I understand it. Okay, so if before getting injected with the gene, only... Five out of a thousand survived. After you inject the gene, 500 out of a thousand will survive. Yeah, as I understand it. That is nuts. Yeah. Those are some strong little X yeasts, X men <laughs> yeasts. Yeah. Put some of that in my beer, you know? Yeah, seriously. I have no idea what the side effects would be. If you're listening to this, I can't recommend trying that, but. I've said many times in this episode, I'm not a biologist, but I think it would be good for you. Yeah. Go ahead and do it. I'm not a biologist, but I'm almost a doctor. Yes. Which is uh, scary. Counts for something, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, this paper is really, really dense. There are a lot of parts I couldn't even cover in this, but it was, it was really cool to read. How was it really long? So the paper itself is probably six pages. But if you download the full paper with supplementary materials like I did, Comes in at a lean 127 pages. Oh, no. James. <laughs> you know, a lot Did of those you read are... that whole thing? Yes. <laughs> a lot of it ends up just being uh, documentation of their methodology and plots afterwards. Okay. So I did not read. Still. Yeah. If you're interested, it's available online. Definitely worth checking out. Really cool research. If you do biology, and especially if you study tardigrades and you're listening to this, I'm really sorry if I butchered your research. Yeah, you know, I made a joke at the beginning that someone should come in here and punch us in the face. And now I feel less jokey about that sentiment. <laughs> I feel like I deserve a punch in the face. You earned it, Charlie. You earned it. So now with all that new stuff that we just learned, and how you say that this crops up in the news like every couple of months, I'm curious about at least the news article from the New York Times that you said turned you on to this. What was their reporting like? Did you feel like this was a good coverage of of what the current state of the art in this field is? Yeah, 
I think if you actually take the time to read these articles, there is good coverage out there. It was really insightful for me, though, personally, to actually go through and read the paper. I found the paper to be really dense, and especially for someone who's not in that field, it took me a really long time to actually crack into it, and so hopefully I did okay. But, you know, my main takeaway was getting a better gist of what the actual state of the art is in studying tardigrades. People talk about like, oh, you know, from tardigrades, we could learn immortality and things like that. And you're like, yeah, that sounds great. And Isaac Asimov book of like how yeah. people made it to Saturn and populated, you know, Titan or whatever. Yeah. A hundred other things we have never done before. <laughs> yeah. And so to be like, well, so we think it's this protein and we use these really complex methods to measure it. It was insightful for me just to like understand more what's the actual science behind this and also to see though like yeah they could put this in yeast and bacteria and start to get real results so i think it's cool we're at a really neat spot and i hope within our careers at least we actually see some cool new tests that evolve from this where they take it further from yeast and bacteria and see like maybe you could really help heart cells or do things where you could help preserve like certain medications that have a really short shelf life mm, yeah things like that yeah, or like just spun into some kind of general treatment like later on. Yeah. That could just help with aging or something. Absolutely. Gotta well, get these wrinkles out of my eyes. <laughs> yeah, you're getting up there in years, aren't you? <laughs> well, that's really cool. I'm glad you brought it in. It will be kind of a good like reference point for me when I do eventually see a story like this. And for anyone listening, when they come across these random tardigrade things that you might pass over normally, this could definitely help contextualize all that. Also, if you're considering immortality. That's true. Many Silicon Valley billionaires might be interested to learn about this. Cool. Well, that was, I mean, super fascinating. Anyone who wants to kind of dive into what James dove into, we'll be posting that paper, probably the six-page version, on our website, paperboyspodcast.com. We'll throw a couple news articles up there, too, so you can get the full experience. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, please don't forget to share with a friend and reach out to us on social media at paperboys pod we'd love to hear from you oh also we set up a t-shirt store at t public if you go to our website paperboyspodcast.com you'll find a link to the site they look pretty darn good shout out to customer number one carrie clifton down in jacksonville florida check out our twitter page you can see uh they look pretty spiffy thanks everyone and join us again next week for another exciting edition of paper boys thanks for listening